Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out Toronto Today. And we're off a uh, long weekend, full work week ahead for the show. Jason Chapman is in for Shiva Siddiqui. So a couple of our conversations on the podcast. In addition, we talked to Dave Perry. Couple issues there. One, car theft in Toronto. It's kind of fallen out of the headlines a little bit. All the carjacking stories, all the car theft stories. And we talk about whether or not Toronto Police Services are keeping up whether or not it's less of an issue or whether the numbers are still the same. And it's just frustrating because nothing, not much can be done about it right now. There just aren't the resources. It's kind of an important thing to wake up in the morning. You don't see your car in the driveway. We'll talk about that with Dave. Sarah Kleimanhog is going to run for mayor. She finished sixth in the voting last time out, and she says, I'm in again. I want to make Toronto better. So we'll go through some of those issues with her as well. And Anthony Farnell talking about heat warnings and he brings up a really good point as to whether or not we're getting numb to the idea of a heat warning yes it's going to be 26 27 28 most days i think we're adjusted for that but when it's really really hot maybe we're not quite as prepared because we're just constantly under heat warnings maybe it's that it's all coming up next on toronto today Toronto today, a place for all of us in the city and beyond to converse, have some chats, and we're going to do that uh, a good chunk of the morning. Uh, Full work week for me. Everybody's back at it after a long weekend. Although, again, I've said this on Thursday, I think if you uh, have some American blood in your system, maybe you married an American I, I think a proper email early on to say to the boss, I, I, I'm going to I'm going to just going to take it a little easy today. I'm going to I'm going to go at about 60 percent that that gas pedal. I'm, I'm not pushing full way down on it, maybe for an hour or two, maybe some hard manual labor. That's a different story, by the way, if you're fixing somebody's skylight or you're repairing roof shingles or digging in for a pool. We know we know you've got uh, we've got no choice. You got no choice. And we appreciate those people that are out there doing that, by the way, too. So. Let me begin here. Thursday, we wrapped up our show going into Canada Day weekend and pretty hopeful and pretty optimistic. I know sometimes the criticism of the media is, well, two things. One, everybody thinks the media work at the same place and we've all got the same goals. Just a giant building, probably a giant brick and mortar building. It says media on the outside and we all assemble there and we come up with our plans and our schemes for how we're going to cover stories. Wait a minute. We don't we don't do that. We everybody's got a different job and everybody's got a different principle and philosophy. And and yes, people say, hey, you know, make sure you're you're giving your opinion. Well, research make. So, no, we don't get in those buildings and do that on a regular basis. But Thursday, I do think it's worth pointing out a couple of stories circulating in the media. The media were what will happen in Ottawa Will it be a repeat of January and February with the Freedom Convoy? Will there be hot tubs and dance parties? And will there be tension? Will there be horns honking nonstop? Those are questions. Those were honest questions on Thursday morning on June 30th, 30 days in the month of June, obviously. And in Toronto, let's localize it here and come back to Ottawa. Let's start where where we live. Okay. The big question was going to be, can we actually pull off celebrations as complicated and cumbersome and confusing as um, fireworks celebrations. Can we, can we do a celebration where city officials bring in vendors slash experts? They wait until dark. They kind of build up the anticipation. Maybe there's a live band. Maybe there's some bouncy castles for the kids. Maybe there's some corn dogs and, and corn and, and more corn, and can we can we get that anticipation working? Then at 10 o'clock, let's say it's at 10 o'clock, we light up the sky with brilliant fireworks, and everybody gets together on Canada Day wearing red and white, and their faces are painted, and they're old Canadians or the new Canadians, and can we do that in a civil fashion without shooting fireworks at each other and uh, without uh, police on horseback coming in and having to quell some disruptions? Well, it turns out we can. John Tory had this warning. Why do I know this is true? And I understand why he would have to say something like this. The mayor of Toronto had this warning about bad behavior on Canada Day on said Thursday last week. 
the chief and I both want people to remain safe. We want the behavior to be, uh, you know, consistent with what we would want to be seen as Canadians and Torontonians, which means not shooting fireworks at each other, not drinking uh, to excess, uh, not engaged in rowdy behavior. Uh, I think people learned some lessons from uh, the Victoria Day experience, and I think a lot of it was at the hands of a very small number of people, and I hope that those people smarten up and understand as well that there's going to be zero tolerance for that kind of uh, behavior. Okay. Two things that, that jump out of me from John Tory's quote there. Smarten up. Appears we did that. And zero tolerance. And that message was put out there in advance. Now, you shouldn't have to put out a zero tolerance message. I don't think there should be. If you're shooting fireworks at people, if you're if you're assaulting cops, seven Toronto cops were injured on Victoria Day. Seven. More than six, less than eight. But it's seven too many. And many people describe the uh, incident. We had somebody on, I know, the Tuesday after Victoria Day. Remember, all this chaos happened on the Sunday before the official fireworks at Woodbine Beach and at Asbridge's Bay Park on the Sunday night of Victoria Day. And some people do that. My recollection is there's probably more parties on Sunday in uh, in Ontario and some setting off of fireworks than Monday night because a lot of us have to go to work on Tuesday morning and kids go to school on Tuesday morning, something you don't have to worry about when you get to July. So um, five arrests were reported. There was a firearm incident. There was a stabbing incident, but none of this happened this weekend. So we did smarten up. We did get a little bit of a do over with how we behaved. And I think you got to take some, some element of a win where indeed it is. So that's a big factor right there. Um, That's a huge factor. Ashbridge's Bay, of course, west side of Toronto, Woodbine Beach, east side of Toronto. Basically, bottom lining it, it didn't kick off. There was no issue. There was no bad behavior. And let's take the wins where we can indeed get them. We had no controversy, no big negative stories. And I know sometimes to circle back, sometimes you say, well, the media doesn't talk about when things go well. Here I am. I'm telling you what went really well this past weekend. Similarly, and I'm going to cover some of what it meant to be out for a lot of us on Canada Day evening, because I was one of those thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands that attended mass fireworks displays on Friday night. Um, I didn't want to miss it this year for whatever reason. I'm not usually get together, public park, fireworks guy. Our kids are old. We kind of had to drag our youngest to go with a friend of his. We're like free food, hanging out. There might be some interesting games there. Turns out he's about seven, eight years older than probably the average kid there, but that's okay. He went and we had a good time and we were pleased with how it all went. Ottawa, same thing. Okay. We did get some quote unquote freedom fighters, but pretty small in numbers. Here's some of what those demonstrating in Ottawa told our global news reporters. We didn't give up. We didn't give in. We, we are still here, and we're still proud to be here. We're fighting for our rights. The government's taking away one step at a time. Things are going in the right direction. But if they try this again in the fall, we're going to be out double the size. So no doubt, people went to Ottawa and wanted to make some noise. Maybe, I think, on both sides of the, of the fence. I won't even say the political fence, because I don't think that this is about pure politics. I know huge supporters of the Liberal Party of Canada who went in January, February. I could name them for you. They're in my phone. They were letting me know while they were there saying, we're here because of something we believe in that we disagree with over the party that we consider ours, over the against the prime minister who we voted for a couple times, maybe even three times. That was the conversation I was having in January and February, no doubt about it. And this past weekend, again, I think things went well. Uh, Jason Chapman rejoins me. And I mentioned this earlier. A listener was listening to our conversation about um, about the uh, the car theft victims tracking down their stolen cars and, uh, and raises an interesting question. I don't know why this is the case is to why when you buy a car, when that car is yours, whether it's a lease or a buy, why can't why can't you have technology to disable that car if it's not where you think it is? And I don't have a good answer for that. I don't know the answer for that. I like the idea on, on, upon hearing it. Yeah, I, I would imagine there's a bit of a fear. Okay, let's imagine that uh, you're uh, in a non-amicable relationship. and I knew um, that's where you were going. You know, I think <laughs> there might be an issue with, uh, oh, look at that, hubby's on the old 401. Maybe I'm just going to give him a bit of a miserable day just after uh, Milton on his way to Guelph, and then you're stuck in the middle of nowhere. I 
Just guessing. Or you're in a non-amicable parenting relationship with a 17-year-old that takes your car out after 11 o'clock at night without your knowledge, and you give him a little bit of a a little bit of an electric zapping. That's right. So (laughs) I think there's technology on the horizon, but some people issues need to be worked out before giving that tool. I oh, guess, uh, but you I can, f- but the fact that you can find it, and to your point in the in the story, in Kevin Donovan's story, is you can find it, and yet you're helpless. And yeah. I, I, I don't doubt that this clearly is probably policy on the part of of the Toronto Police. I'd love to hear an explanation because after the Marner carjacking, James Raymer got in front of a mic. A couple yep. other task force members got in front and said, "We're cracking down on this." The mayor said, "You got to crack down on this." I know. Again. People say things to say things. Of course, they do, and they have to. But I, I can't tell if if it's been better. There were some arrests made uh, in the subsequent weeks after the Marner thing, and I can't tell if that part's improved or whether we just have has our media lens just moved on to something else. And there's the same amount of cars being stolen as two months ago. I don't know. It's what it sounds like. There's there's just as many. Again, we're at a we're at sixty percent more. This year compared to last year of car thefts. I think this is still going on big time, Greg. Uh, I mean, there's a whole special investigative task force. It's called the Organized Crime Investigative Support Team. An extra two million bucks has been put over to cops to specifically investigate carjackings. But I'm just going to, it sounds like there's too many. There's too many for cops mm-hmm. to actually keep up with. That's what it sounds like to me. We have a finite number of cops out there. So. Um, we, we got a few minutes here on the, uh, on the, in, in the Toronto Sun this morning. Brian Lilly got a hold of, as he often does, a uh, a directive from uh, the about the National Fire Code of Canada, and it's from the fire chief for Toronto Pearson Airport. So the, the chief of that handles fire and emergency services, which is a big job. A, an airport's a community in itself, and he notes um, this is very much a uh, a. A, a finger of blame pointed more towards it feels like the airlines than either the GTAA or the federal government. I think we've looked at everybody and said, is is everyone in sync? No. Is everyone doing their job as to the best of their abilities? No. But that the backups are so bad that there's constantly what what's described as a national fire code violation at Pearson. And you can understand why. The one time I've flown this year, stepping into that customs room, coming back from the United States, is the most crowded, the most, um, I wouldn't call it insecure, but the most uh, overly sensitive I've been to being in a crowded space during the pandemic and let alone in the last several years. Okay, so here's what I understand, though, right? Okay, let's break down this. So you've got Air Canada. Let's use them as an example. They're the air provider. But they're like, that's a company that wants to keep its passengers happy. Allegedly, I mean, I know that that doesn't usually happen, but okay, they they need to take our money to stay in business. Then you have the airport, which is federally regulated and has to follow a bunch of rules, including fire code regulations. You've been on a long flight from Europe and you're landing in Toronto. You've been on the plane for seven hours and the passengers, you know this, the second mm-hmm. you pull to the gate, everybody stands up and they want to get off. The fire chief of Pearson Airport, though, is saying, nope, listen, airlines, you have to keep those passengers on the plane until you get a special clearance to let them off. So, yes, it's a tug of war. The airlines know they're going to be the ones who take the flack. You're going to hashtag Air Canada sucks sitting on the tarmac at the gate for hours. And the planes are gross after they touch. They're great when they're in the sky. Once they pull to the gate, they're disgusting. They're gross. So you just want off. And the airlines just want to keep their customers happy allegedly Uh, yeah so this allegedly this is i mean you know we've got to stop taking so much time clearing people through customs it's completely unnecessary we found out last week that arrive can is still going to be in play until september 30th meaning that it used to take customs agents what 30 seconds to clear somebody it's still taking them on average two and a half or three minutes right and we hear greg last week from the federal minister of transport that they're doing all we can do well let's hear that clip yeah. Sophia. let's play the clip and hear what the federal minister of transport says the government of canada is doing to improve your travel experience on our end we have done everything we can that is within the control of the federal government now we need to work with airlines and airports at dealing with the 
flight delays and luggage handling issues because they we need uh, the cooperation of airlines and airports to address these issues. <laughs> oh, it's the airlines. Great. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I loved right, it like when, when, when we had Marcy in on a few weeks ago. She's like, I know Minister El Gaber's not sleeping very much, and I think I couldn't help myself. I said, I wouldn't be either. All right, a lot of concern about this, and we saw this over the weekend. School just ends, and you think, okay, that might be it for education stories for a bit. But I get why this is concerning, and I get why there's a lot of questions about this. The province of Ontario is going to drop um, a, an Indigenous science framework from their elementary school curriculum that would have sort of taught a lot of the connections between i guess what we deem western science and indigenous science joining us to discuss this jody williams co-chair of the first nations metis and inuit education association of ontario jody thanks for making the time for our audience and thanks for coming on the show thanks for having me were you blindsided by this or was this something that was sort of bubbling up and you're like i you know you're worried that something like this could take place no unfortunately uh, we have been very active in advocating and lobbying pretty hard for uh, Indigenous knowledge to be included in the curriculum. Particularly, uh, a lot of attention was drawn after the uh, TRC report, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission report came out and changes to the curriculum were mandated. And uh, when the change in government took place in the first round, um, there was a quote unquote pause <laughs> It's the longest pause we've ever experienced um, in terms of the work being done there. So it's not surprising. It's very frustrating. And quite frankly, we don't really understand what the worry is. When you include Indigenous voices, it actually enhances education. It's a win-win for everyone. We, are, we all currently live and reside on these lands, and there's a lot to learn and from, and um, that's going to actually help. Uh, make decisions moving forward in the future, particularly for the fact that our children in schools should really be tackling things like climate change. This is their lived reality that this is the legacy that we are leaving with them. And it's also a legacy brought on by Western science. Yeah, yeah, I, they sure should be, uh, you know, regardless of, of background, they all sure should be learning that stuff. And and I'm sure science classes have changed a lot since you were in school. I were in school. And that's the point is that is that there should be that element of evolution to it. And I want to pick up on something you said about it is, is the provinces were told in 2015 by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We need a little bit of a step up from each individual province, given education's a provincial responsibility and start making indigenous contributions. Have they have they it, but there's no sort of you know, percentage quota is there. It's just more a, a wink and a nod that, yes, we'll do that. But this clearly seems like a step backward in that commitment. That's exactly it. And not only is there a lack or, or not enough um, content being put into the curriculum, the other big, big thing on this is teacher training. It's one thing to have, you could have the perfect curriculum, but don't forget, teachers don't just wake up one morning and suddenly have all this knowledge bestowed upon them. So we have an education system for um, decades has been telling one narrative. For example, do you even see the Anishinaabek Nation on a map? When we, when we teach maps in schools, we have an, a, a massive erasure that's been going on in education. And so this is our chance to correct a lot of these harmful narratives that are still being taught. And those harmful narratives, although they may seem to uh, people as what's the big deal, well, to a lot of Indigenous students who are sitting in that classroom, imagine what it feels like to not even be represented in any of these subject areas. So like I said, it's, it's good for you know, all students to be learning about these lands um, the magnificent and powerful science that Indigenous knowledge systems have to offer. Um, these are not something that is just in the past. Um, these are something that are that are happening right now. And in fact, places like NASA um, are reaching out to communities and to um, people that we refer to oftentimes as elders or knowledge keepers. Those would be the equivalent of the PhD holders in Western science. They're reaching out because they see that there's actually quite a bit of value um, to be yeah, included yeah. in the dialogue. Jody Williams is our guest on Toronto Today, co-chair of the First Nations Métis and Inuit Education Association of Ontario. 
what would you like to see if you could draw it up on a on a chalkboard uh though we barely use those anymore what what should the science <laughs> curriculum include what should be in the curriculum I think it also has to be a shift in how we are teaching in schools. So we have to move away from, you know, the uh, the beginning of industrial schools when they first came out that you were just you're sitting in rows listening to some expert at the front of the classroom dictate the knowledge. I think we need to really um change how learning happens because it's just kids don't learn that way. And so if we can flip it around and actually look to Indigenous pedagogy, which is steeped in experiential learning, where you're, um, and this is, you know, how even if you think about it, when we go out into the world of work or wherever we are, everything is based on the experience um, of learning in that area of expertise. When you when you have that ability for students to learn through inquiry, natural curiosity, asking questions, um, you're going to have a more powerful um, experience in education. And it's also levels the playing field for all students to excel in the strengths and, and areas that they, how they learn best. That's what Indigenous knowledge, Indigenous pedagogy, Indigenous ways of knowing, that's what it has to offer. I've got a question I want to ask uh, before we wrap, so I want to save time for it um, and, and let you stretch that answer out about residential school history and how that's being taught just in the last year and a half and curriculums are being adjusted. But but I'd say what's the next step here with with this concern about the indigenous science framework being removed? Can you can you protest? Can there be some some give and take some quid pro quo with the education ministry? What Like, what are you hopeful for, Jody? having this conversation right here, um, having people, not just Indigenous people, but all people uh, speak up and speak out. That's what we need. And we saw this after the TRC changes were first put on pause, quote unquote, um, that there was an uproar and educators really took took the lead to that. That's what we need to see. We also know that despite what happens at the government level, educators do what's best in the classroom. They will find ways to bring in um, these knowledge systems and do this in the right way. They often will go out of their way on their own time, pay out of pocket for training. Um, they're gonna people will do the right thing, but it's too, it's mm. just frustrating that it has to be always put back on you know the everyday person to do what's right when really it's the government that in you know although years ago install and instilled this awful legislation called the Indian Act. We're still um, we're still under the Indian Act today, and it still feeds into decision making. Who is making the decisions? Who is um, at those tables, and who is not? And at the end of the day, in education, we're still erased. Um, people aren't learning about us, and therefore, it upholds harmful stereotypes that we mm -hmm. often see play out in the classroom. And that's what we're trying to change. Jody Williams is with us, co-chair of the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit Education Association of Ontario. So I've laid this out before, but my kids are now 16 and 14. They'll both be in high school next year. But they they were coming to the kitchen table for dinners and talking about, we're, we're learning about residential schools. We're mm -hmm. talking about it. And this was way pre-spring 21 with the discoveries of residential graves. But it's not a it's not a knowledge base that I had going to elementary school or high school in the 80s or 90s. Are we moving the ball forward? Are we doing better on this? And, and there's a way to do it. I hear some parents saying, well, you, you know, don't blame my kid. I agree. Yeah, you can't have teacher go, hey, listen up. Uh, all you colonizers out in the classroom, but there's a way to do this properly Absolutely. and instill it as part of a part of everyday curriculum, even at a younger age, even at the elementary school level. Absolutely. We and we talk about this, that when we have these very difficult conversations, when we're talking about genocide, residential schools, um, these have to be age appropriate. Mm -hmm. So it's not something we talk about in grade one or grade three in the same way that we would talk about it in, say, grade 11 and grade 12. Um, and we also have to balance those that those truths, they're hard truths that need to be told. And yes, we are doing a lot better. Could it be done much better? Yes, but we are moving forward, which is good. Um, but we have to balance that also out with the beauty and brilliance of Indigenous peoples as well. Oftentimes that's missed out contributions is a very um, easy way for folks to bring into the classroom and learn about um, the yeah. incredible uh, contributions past and present that people are making or have made. 
um, in order to, again, so that society sees mm. Indigenous peoples differently than how you and I were um, uh, raised through the education system, which was either a complete absence of it or often very harmful um, stereotypes. Yeah, and and sometimes both. And, and that's that yeah. was a problem. Absolutely. Jody, thanks so much for the time. Um, I, I know it's summer, but let's have another conversation about this heading into uh, the September school year. I'd really enjoy that. And it's so educational for me and our listeners. Thank you again. Thank you. Dave Perry. Um, and the last time I heard Dave, I think we were just coming off uh, the uh, the issues with the uh, Quebec mosque killer, and he was talking about parole sentences and uh, deterrent for crime. I always enjoy conversations with Dave, former Toronto cop, now security analyst. Uh, and we'll get into some of uh, what we just mentioned with the wiping of, uh, of convictions and how policing kind of evolves based on that. Um, at Pearson Airport today, in for Marianne Domain this week, we find global news reporter, Fraser Snowden. Fraser, it's great to have you on. Thanks for uh, getting up early and making time for us on the radio side. We appreciate it. Hey, Greg. Yeah, no problem at all. It's uh, yeah, definitely early morning for sure. Now, I, <laughs> now I'm told little uh, little birdies, uh, little source birdies say you've had a recent flying experience through Pearson. So tell uh, tell our audience about uh, York's. Even if it was great, you can uh, you can tell us uh, what was it like for you. Well. Yeah, I mean, it, it, honestly, I guess I had a better time than others because uh, we we came, uh, you know, the two two and a half hours earlier, like you're supposed to, and we still uh, waited in, in a huge line for security, and we waited in uh, baggage uh, check. But the the issue I found is that even the like Air Canada staff they they don't know how to direct the people because everybody's lining up for things that they don't they don't have to line up for sometimes. So it's, it's just a lot of confusion everywhere. And even the, you know, you can tell even the staff is just getting frustrated with the whole situation. We somehow made it on our flight 15 minutes before, uh, you know, last call. And, uh, you know, but we, we uh, divided and conquered. My wife got in the security lineup with my toddler and uh, I did the bag drop and somehow we made it. I don't even know how. Wow. And someday you'll uh, you'll exaggerate the links to your toddler that you and your wife went to uh, to make sure there was a family uh, trip involved, because then they'll, he's he or she's going to take care of you when they're older. That's all I know. That's all I know. I uh, I, I definitely hope so. I mean, my <laughs> wife hasn't told me the, the whole story, I'm sure, but there were a lot of tantrums in that security lineup. I'm pretty sure <laughs> I uh, I can imagine. And some uh, and some from the adults involved. So I got about 40 seconds here. You're you're looking at um, a lot of the troubles. You're sort of get, getting a gauge. You've seen all the stories. There have been dogs left in crates for long periods of time. There's people that can't find their luggage for two weeks. So you, your your story today is in, in essence envelops all that chaos, right? Oh, oh, definitely. I mean, just quickly, like we talked to uh, a couple of gentlemen that were flying to India. They've been here since last night. The uh, voucher that they got for their hotel didn't even let them stay over at the hotel. And uh, they've, they're like airing all their frustrations to us. Um, it took them almost 10 minutes to tell us a story because they just wanted to, to tell us how frustrated they were with the whole process. I don't, I think that they spent 5000 or $10,000 on their flights, and uh, they don't even know if they're going to be able to get their money back. They're, they're very, very upset with the whole process. Oh, I'm ill hearing that. But we will watch for your report a little later on today, Fraser. Thanks for letting uh, our show check in with you. No problem. Thanks, Greg. Fraser Snowden, uh, Global News reporter. Yeah, you know, again, J- Jason Chapman joins me. I hear toddlers. I hear I used to travel so much for work, doing great things, uh, covering sports teams and whatnot. And, and that joy, Jason, of of getting through that gate, knowing you had a book to read, you'd buy a couple magazines, you were going to watch a movie on your iPod and just sitting there in peace and tranquility until your flight departed. Like, I don't know if those days are over, but they're not coming back anytime soon, anytime soon. Well, here's the thing, Greg. I mean, 50 million. Oh, here, here's the thing. Yeah. 50 million people go through Pearson on a regular year. So pre pandemic, that dropped to around 13 million passengers in the middle of the pandemic. But that 50 million is coming back strong. And yes, to bring joy to all those people, bud, we've got to figure things out again. And that means just not treating everybody like they're a criminal walking through the airport. And I mean, when you spend as much time as we are right now, it's just leading to all this lack of joy. I know, man, I hear you. You know, I, I I was reading that there was about 50,000 people employed by the airport before the pandemic. I can't find the number right now. I don't think they've got all the way back up to 50,000 again. I think people have left. I think that mm-hmm. 
we're going to have to bring the numbers back up again because, yeah, I want joy in travel. Of course, I want headaches every once in a while. It's part of the joy of travel. Like people, but, Jason, people don't yeah. go back to restaurants after one bad experience that like for like, you know, it could be just right. on, on a second or third date. But your service is lousy. Something didn't go right. Uh, something that was hot was cold and vice versa. And and like for a $60 bill, you're like, that's the end of that place. So think, listen to what Fraser said. Thousands of dollars spent on on tickets. Your, your pet, you're traveling with your pet and either the pet ends up there ahead of you or you end up there ahead of the pet, not even knowing if right. that dog or I've never had to put a dog or cat or on a plane and I never would want to. Here's but, one of the things, yeah, I like that really annoyed me through the pandemic is people said, Oh, it's such a privilege to be able to travel. Can I be honest? No, it, it, it yes, sometimes it is. If you're going to an all inclusive resort, yes, but we set the world up as a global neighborhood, right? This is where we heard Fraser talking about people in India from India wanting to, it's because we live all over the world. Our family is everywhere. It's not just a privilege anymore. It's a way of life. And so we, the airports, have, we, what are we going to do? Are we, are we done with global travel? Are we done with people living all over the world? If we are, okay, well, let's have that conversation so we can live closer to each other. But right now the world's set up in a way that it's not just people going on vacations. They're going to see loved ones. They're going to see dying loved ones. They're going to see new babies. I, this is not just a privilege thing, people. No, it's not. That's not. I, I'm glad not. you said that because I, I, I resent that implication because uh, I think people work hard to get where, where they're at to earn the right, the free time, the vacation time, whatever, to take that trip to experience. It's like it's like I'm like you and McGregor in that Expedia. I really am like you will always remember the places you go, the bunch of stuff you have in your basement that you haven't even touched in a year yep. or the stuff you bought your kid that they played with three times. I know you're in that era right now. I've got a lot of toys that you can come over to the garage and pick up later on today. Uh, I need you- no more toys in my <laughs> Toronto home. There's no room. Thank you, though, for the offer, especially I- everything made by Fisher Fisher Price um, eight times too big for my house. Anyways, exactly, on, exactly. Sorry. So I, I've missed I've missed two funerals based on yeah. the fact that yeah. we haven't been able to travel. There are definitely people with younger kids or high school graduations. I easily could have attended. That I'm sure people didn't ask because they're like, well, he can't get here. He can't get to Ohio. He can't come to New York State. He can't do this. He can't do that. So no, like <laughs> we live in a global village. That's it. I mean, people are going through that airport for all sorts of reasons. Yes, some of it is a very lucky we're able to take vacations and stuff but a lot of it is not a lot of it is my family is in india my family family is in england my oh the joy pal i hope it comes back one day it's never going to be perfect let's be honest it's airport is flying it's post 9 11 it's always going to be a pain in the butt but some joy's got to come back man yeah dave perry uh is kind enough to join us we love checking in with him security analyst former toronto cop it's great to have you on the show thanks for making time on a monday dave we appreciate it yeah good to be here um, this is one of those scenarios where I think, especially after the Mitch Marner carjacking, Toronto police had a news conference. They said, we're on this. They actually did make uh, some carjacking arrests that were rather successful. But I, I can't tell, and I want to know if you have a read on it, if if us in the media have sort of just shifted our lens to other big issues, gas prices, the airport, or whether or not they've sort of, police have sort of made a dent in some of the rings that were being utilized to uh, to steal cars, or whether they're still happening with a with a relative frequency. Yeah, I think they've made a dent, you know, in carjacking. You know, even though the numbers have uh, gone up significantly since last year and the year before, it's still a relatively small group of people that are involved in carjacking rings. So <clears throat> I think the police have got that under control. They've got a handle on it. But the car thefts, they've, out, they've outpaced police resources, quite frankly. So officers are having a real hard time keeping up with the number of vehicles that are just simply being stolen every day in the GTA. It sounds that way, doesn't it? As in, if I if I go out, well, uh, if I go out and my car is missing from a parking lot later today and I call 911, for all the people that would do that in the Toronto area, there may not be an officer that can come on scene for every single person that happens to. And that sounds ludicrous, but if people really had a, had a sense of the numbers and the resources on hand, maybe they'd get why that would be the case. Yeah, the numbers sure don't line up when you look at officers uh, deployed, the number of resources, the number of radio calls, and especially the number of 911 calls. And I'll tell you, if you're, you wake up in the morning and your car is missing from your driveway, it's no longer a 911 call. It's simply a call to the regular police number. And unfortunately, you'll get put in the queue and your report will be taken at a particular time, depending on resources. And then, you know, if there's a, a detective assigned, then that, that detective will get in 
in touch with, with you in all due course, but it's it's no longer a 911 call. The tracking uh, issue, I can understand the frustration because, listen, I'd be frustrated if I was sitting at home and watching on my app yeah. where my vehicle was and I couldn't get a police officer to attend immediately. But that's the reality of what we're facing today. Police resources are such that they can no longer uh, handle that kind of volume of calls. Dave Perry is our guest on Toronto Today. So does that create a little bit of a conundrum in that if it's someone like me and I'm naturally curious and I see my car on my app and it's just at the same location for a day or two, I'm inclined to drive out there and see what's going on with it. And I know police would say, please don't do that if your car was taken from your driveway. But that's human nature. And you'd rather not have to make that call to the insurance company. You'd rather figure out a different way. Yeah, for sure. And and like you, I'd, human nature, I know I'd be <laughs> sitting somewhere very close to where my car was. And then I suppose the next thing you could only try and do is be your advocate where you're calling the police and and constantly calling the police and saying, I'm looking at my car. It's, it was stolen on this date. Could you please send a car over? You you may or may not get somebody's attention for, for that. But the, the reality is it becomes a property crime at that point. It becomes an issue that's you know, quite frankly, covered by insurance. And, you know, when the radio's going off and, and there are 911 calls being backed up, you know which ones are going to get the priority. And it's, it's kind of sad, quite frankly, that that's, that's where we are. But uh, trust me, even when I retired, we were facing the same kinds of issues. And I know it's a lot worse now in terms of the number of officers versus the number of radio calls and calls for service. So well, it's, it's a tough one. But it's become a lot more of a, of a you know, uh, how would I put it, like a, a crime a crime of the day. When, I, when we had a bank robbery in Toronto last week, and obviously the, the unbelievable situation that happened in B.C., I'm like, that's that feels like a crime from a quarter century ago. Like, who who wants to take the chance of robbing a bank to uh, to, you know, to make themselves more profitable when they can take a car from someone's driveway much, much easier with a lot less security and a lot less of a response from from police? Yeah, it's hard to believe that people are still robbing banks. I, today. Yeah, that's, that's the desperation of certain criminals. Right. And and perhaps their lack of ability to plan something that might be a little bit less dangerous for them and the public and maybe a little bit more beneficial, like stealing a car. The, the car car theft is is right now. It's the it's it's the crime, the current crime where people are, you know, either doing it for, again, just like the carjacking, two reasons. They're doing it so they can use them as crime cars or they're doing it for profit, whereby, you know, they use that that uh, organized crime market that's out there and they're shipping them across overseas and, and making an awful lot of money. So, I, so it's, it's a real problem. I want to wait um, in a few minutes. I want to I want to leave a few minutes for this this kind of breaking story this morning about drug possession records. But a couple listeners asked and I thought it sounded like a good idea. And I wish I'd come up with it first. The idea that you could, you know, we're talking about putting, um, you know, ignition in cars that like with breathalyzers, there's a lot of organizations that say, well, let's do that. And that's got so many complexities and the possibility of a, of a bad reading or, or whatnot. But, but a couple listeners did say, why can't, if I own the car and all of a sudden that car disappears, why don't I have the controls to disable the car from where I am? And I don't have a great answer as to why. I'm sure there's a few good reasons why that doesn't work and why you just couldn't give someone that ability and capacity. But what's your thought on it? Well, the, the biggest reason, I love the idea, quite frankly, but <laughs> the biggest reason <laughs> is safety, right? So somebody's zipping along a highway and you know they've just stolen a car and they're doing 100 miles an hour and you suddenly disable that car, you could imagine what could happen, right? So it's it's really yeah. all about that. And, you know, if somebody stole my car and I disabled it and then they smashed into a pole, I wouldn't be overly upset about that. But, you know, there's the other people operating on the road that you'd have to be concerned about as well. So there are all those challenges. And it's, it's one of the reasons that, you know, they sort of leave that to the professionals like OnStar. I know they have the technology. If you have your vehicle stolen, they can start disabling the car sort of in a, in a slower pace where it's suddenly not from zero to a hundred where people lose control, but they can eventually disable it or wait till it comes to a rest or the, point. yeah, the arresting right. point or the second time you try and start it, it won't start. Um, exactly. yeah, it, there's, there are, but, you know, here's the problem. And, and here's, I think there's always a solution to a problem. I, I think technology will have to try and stay ahead of the criminals and that's going to be tough because there's small mm-hmm. teams of engineers looking at the technology component and there are the masses out there who are looking how to defeat them, and uh, and they're getting pretty sophisticated. So it's actually, I hate to say it, but fairly mm-hmm. impressive with some of the techniques they come up steal cars these days. 
The good news is I do know that in policing, this has become a priority. It's not the absolute priority because uh, other than the carjacking component, they tend to be nonviolent crimes. If somebody gets up and their car is missing in the morning, that's one thing. But I can tell you that there has been, as limited as they are, there has been tremendous police resources shifted into this whole aspect of carjacking, car theft, mm. to see if we can get under control. And that hurts, right? Because they, ha- they yeah. have to come from somewhere. So some other part of policing is lacking the resources right now while they try and tackle yet another problem. So that's just the way policing is. I gotcha. We got two minutes here on uh, Bill C-5. So when the House of Commons uh, left for the summer, they did get this passed. And that was going to, the goal is obviously to reduce um, what's described as an over-incarceration of, uh, of Indigenous people in prison, Black people in prison. But the concept is Canadians with criminal records for drug possession will see those convictions vanish. Um, cl- I mentioned this earlier that I wanted to ask you. Clearly for trafficking, I, I mean, cops can't turn a blind eye to a drug sale happening on a Toronto City street or in front of a concert or a restaurant or on a Friday night out. They have to, they have to address those issues still, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. Um, but you know what? I doubt there's a cop out there that really cares that suddenly they're going to, uh, you know, get, erase records for simple possession and stuff like that. It, like, really, it, it doesn't mean anything to any of us, I don't think, to, mm-hmm. to see that happen. And <clears throat> certainly for people that deserve a second chance, and there's many of them out there that have this sort of nagging conviction that stops them from being able to cross the border into the U.S. and all kinds of other things for employment. This is not a bad thing, <clears throat> but what we have to do is be careful what we wish for. And it's usually politicians that are wishing for it. And, you know, if they push that agenda too far, and I'm not saying by erasing simple possession charges is going too far, but if they, for example, start going too far down the road, um, you know, we're going to have a little bit of a different look in our communities where people are so heavily addicted and wandering around our streets and, and causing you know, increase in especially petty crime, but also violent crime, as we've seen during the pandemic. Um, you know, we're going to have to be careful. This is a bit of a slippery slope. And, you know, the more that we sort of pull away and become more of a, a social program versus an enforcement program, you get you get what you ask for. You yeah, know, I, I, I think I think there's a violent panhandlers. You got all kinds of other problems. I, I really think there's a fine line and I'm all for saying, well, OK, well, let's eliminate this stigma. And I'm like, OK, but drugs should be something you should not want to be on as opposed to being on. And nobody wants to stigmatize people that need to lose 20 pounds. Nobody wants to stigmatize gambling addicts, but you know, there is a, the goal at the end of the day is to not be those things. So how do we sort of massage you along here to, to make that stop? I think those are, those are important conversations. I agree. A good, a good thing would be to do two things at the same time. Um, yeah. Maybe reduce the simple possession, but you better have a massive resource yeah. in terms of social programming come in to help these people. Yeah. Because uh, they can't help themselves. And that's, that's not being uh, judgmental. It's just a fact that people that are, have addiction mm-hmm. issues are going to continue to have addiction mm-hmm. issues, especially if there's nobody looking. Hear that loud and clear. Dave, let's have more conversations uh, the rest of the summer. Really appreciate your time this morning. Anytime. Always a pleasure. Dave Perry, security analyst, CEO of Investigative Solutions Network and a former Toronto police officer. Yeah, again, just to document it and, and run it back, the criminal records are going to be expunged. People are asking me via text at 289-975-1640, does this mean they're releasing people from jail? I don't know about that. I, I don't know about that or, or reducing sentences or getting people right out. Probably not for trafficking. And again, it's easy to say, well, there shouldn't be anybody, Greg, in jail for simple drug possession. But there are. And that's why the need was there for Bill C-5 in the first place. And that's why, you know, I think there was a lot of work along, uh, you know, across party lines, as they like to say. Our next guest uh, announced she will be running for mayor again. She ran in 2018 and actually had the sixth highest amount of votes uh, when all were counted. And I think a couple of the people that finished ahead of her, I know, are not running again. I'd be shocked if they did. Uh, So she's kind enough to join us right now. She is Sarah Kleimanhag. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you very much for making the time. Oh, you're welcome, Greg. Thanks for having me. Tell us a little bit about the uh, the motivation to get back out there. You you write on Twitter. Um, so many of my core values remain aligned with the quote gutsy safe streets advocate who ran four years ago. So tell our audience about some of those core values, Sarah. Well, I mean, having a livable city. So we know the price of living in this city. We're one of the least affordable cities in North America. And to me, part of the reason is we we don't keep up on our transit. We don't have a good mix of 
of business and shops and uh, within walking distance of our homes. Like there's a few neighborhoods that have that, but as a city as a whole, we could do a lot better job to making it really a thriving city. And so I just see we, Toronto's a great city. I mean, we've got a beautiful waterfront. We've got gorgeous farmland around us and forests within a couple of hours drive. And then we've got this thriving city full of amazing people. And I just think we are not uh, maximizing our potential. So I wanted to run um, for that reason. I'm glad you mentioned transit because I think, Sarah, we've gone through weekend after weekend. It doesn't matter if you're just trying to, you know, go up Young Street on a Saturday afternoon at one o'clock, not a Thursday at five, but a Saturday at one. And you're just nonstop gridlock, um, orange construction barrels everywhere. But we're seeing it on the 401. So it's not just sometimes I think we forget uh, and people that live right in the downtown core forget there's a great big world uh, uh, around us. And we forget out in the suburbs what it means to live in downtown Toronto and why a condo is so valuable to be able to walk and, and utilize transit. So how we meet in the middle on that, I don't know, but but I know we've got a problem getting around this city right now. Uh, the biggest I've ever seen, in fact. Absolutely. And I mean, you talk about the gridlock that's ever present and then the subways, you know, they're they're closed a lot of the time. Uh, we've, we've just got so many things. It's like we're, we're, we're just doing band-aids all over the place. And I think we need some actually really bold moves, not necessarily billions and billions of dollars of infrastructure spending, which is going to take years to, you know, ameliorate the problem. We need to just start doing some, you know, rapid, quick fixes that'll make things better, you know, for not only uh, the people who want to take transit, but the people who are left that need to drive. You know, we got to remember that not everybody on our roads actually wants to be there. There's some people who need to drive. There's <laughs> yeah. some people who love driving. Everybody else would like to do something else. Why don't we make those options better for them? Yeah, I think about that. Uh, the, if you've got the choice, you'll say, well, I'll just stay home. But so many people, this is not unlike work from home, is it? Over the last two years, so many people. Uh, and I don't. I, I think we overuse the word privilege because I think there's things in life that you earn. But at the same time, yes. there's people, I think about that on those hot days, there's people up on roofs changing shingles and there's people digging out backyard pools and there's construction like th th no there's no there's no laptop you can get in front of and do your job you're out there absolutely absolutely i think it's pretty easy to forget especially in government because a lot of government uh people are able to work from zoom and they're not really in touch with the, what's going on right out there on our streets with the people who who are there, who are keeping us all alive, basically. Sarah Kleiman-Hogs, our, our guest on Toronto Today, she announced Friday she's running for mayor for a, uh, a second straight time. She ran in 2018, finished sixth in the popular vote. Before we get into some modern issues now, tell me about that campaign and, and sort of what you learned about the... I, I admire anybody putting their name forward and being able to donate their time and perspective um, to uh, to an effort of... It, I think it's harder to be a politician than ever. I do think that. Yeah, well, you know, I, I learned that a lot of uh, work is driven trying to get... Um, media attention and trying to avoid criticism. And to me, those two things aren't critical to running a government. You know, we, avoiding criticism is going to come with the with the territory. So you need to act with vision. And if some people don't like it, that's okay. Listen to what people have to say and, and move on. So that's what I noticed is a little too much energy spent on image and a little less uh, and, and not enough on actually functioning and actually accomplishing action. Um, I, I noticed a lot of uh, bickering and partisanship, even though the city doesn't have parties, we still act as if we do. And, you know, our, our issues affect everyone, whether you're on the, you know, more conservative side of the spectrum or the mm. more uh, liberal side, if you care about high taxes, low taxes, uh, transit or bikes or, you know, gridlock, whatever it is, we all live in the city and, and share the same problems. And so we shouldn't be divided uh, in partisan ways when it comes to coming up with solutions. There's, you know, we don't need more blame and finger pointing and arguing. We need more, okay, here's the problem. What are we going to do together to solve it as a council and, you know, as a city? Yeah, I, I know we can uh, utilize more of that. By the way, if you want to try and make everybody uh, everybody happy at once, uh, host a radio show. It's really easy to make every oh. single listener happy at the same time. Trust <laughs> of me. Of course. <laughs> and do it early in the morning as well uh, when your brain's not working properly. I want to get to this drug <laughs> possession issue. I, I hope I can. But I want to ask you about the fireworks over the weekend. Um, th this was an odd one. Um, there was a vendor that didn't get paid for the Victoria Day fireworks. It, it got put together back in about 24 hours. Is there any... 
anything to learn from this particular uh, exchange? I went to my own fireworks party uh, community thing out in in Ajax and just saw so many people just happy to gather again. So many people proud to be Canadian, whether they got here a year ago or whether they're like fourth generation like me. I So I, I, I hated that we didn't have these last year and I hated that we almost lost a really important uh, celebration this weekend. Yeah, well, you know, you mentioned your community celebration. Just before I talk about that bigger issue, I want to say when I was looking at this story, I noticed that it's illegal to have neighborhood fireworks displays. That's on the city's. So that's, an, you know, kind of an example of a disconnect. Here we are. It's one of the fun things. We go to our local park. We yeah. share with our neighbors. So the fact that that's illegal, I mean, it's not enforced, but, you know, I question that. Uh, but so with that thing, so first let me give the city credit for scrambling and, and still making the shows happen. You know, one of them was delayed and the others were happening. So give them credit for that's a tough thing when someone pulls out at the last minute. What I didn't like was the headline say, saying vendor pulls out and then you read further in the story, vendor hadn't been paid since doing it in May on the May two four weekend. So, you know, if I were the vendor, I'd be concerned about we, we'd all stop. We'd all stop. Com- we'd all stop coming to work if they didn't pay us. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so if that's a really important piece of information. And I, I think that should be, you know, in part of the discussion of what happened. So, you know, if it was just a one time mistake and just something fell through the cracks, that's OK. We can move on, you know, make sure it doesn't happen the next event. What concerns me more is the bigger issues behind it. Is there a problem at the city with paying its bills? Is there a problem with how whether the city respects the businesses it's doing, uh, you know, that it's working with? Is there a problem with the chain of command and procedure? To me, you know, when you're planning a fireworks event, like isn't the fireworks the top item on your to-do list? Mm. So the fact that that one wasn't smooth makes me wonder, okay, are there procedures we need to talk about? And again, I'd like the city, if there are bigger problems here, let's Put them out there, like be forthright about them, bring them out, and then we'll work on, you know, what's next. Let's get to this one. I want to give you a lot of time to to get into it. So gas down in Toronto now to about a buck eighty-seven a liter, got as high as two fifteen. Is there a level of credit you give the Ford government for slashing the province's gas tax? And the one thing for Toronto City Councillors, whether it's been the things I've been critical for on Mayor Tory or Joe Cressy and I have argued about it. I'm like, I'm like, you got to advocate. This is the biggest city in the country. We, You don't just have to be subservient, do whatever the Ford government says. Politics is about disagreement and debate. And whether you want to have the CNE or you want the Blue Jays to come back a couple weeks earlier last summer, say so. Like, is this? Is this does this seem like a cheap political stunt for the province? And should the city be more involved on asking the feds to do something as well? Well, you know, Greg, you raise an interesting question. Like, how much should the city talk about the federal and the provincial government? And I personally think the city has enough problems with financing and taxes of its own uh, that it shouldn't waste a lot of energy on on uh, telling other governments what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know. Gas prices kind of dropped across the board, so I, I wouldn't say it's all because of uh, our provincial government's decisions to cut taxes. And I'm, I wouldn't really do a lot to applaud it just because the issue of gas energy costs, energy use is a long-term one. And at best, a, a cut in taxes is going to provide some temporary relief. I think the city's role is to look at, okay, our residents, we're the ones who were elected to serve. Um, how are we helping them with the cost of living? And, and high gas prices matter um, when the cost of living is really high. They matter when the only available tran- uh, transportation option yeah. is a car, right? So yeah. let's look at like making our neighborhoods more livable, making it, making again, making our transit better, making our streets safer so that driving isn't the only option for people who live in the city and that living in the city, we have a four, you know, we have housing, mm. we have, we need libraries, all that stuff. Yeah. Go all ahead. that, all that stuff. Well, I'm, I'm out of time, but I want, I want to wish you well. And I want, I want you to come back in a couple of weeks. I got loads of things I want to talk about with transit, safe streets, uh, all that stuff that we were just uh, just getting into. But uh, I wish you well in the initial weeks. It's a long campaign, so I'm glad you're digging in and uh, you, you've always got a spot here when you want to say something and, and we'll uh, we'll have more conversations. Thanks, Greg. Take care. We always visit Monday and Friday with our next guest when he's not sunning himself in beautiful Vermont. One of the best, I mean, on July 4th, easy to point out, it's one of the best 45 states there is. There's no doubt about it. There's some, there's some in flyover country that you wouldn't want to spend time in, but Vermont is high up on the list. And he is, of course, Global News Chief Meteorologist Anthony Farnell. It's great to have you back. You had a good time away? 
Oh yeah, I, I had a great time. I was uh, seeing some family that I hadn't seen in a while, and uh, we haven't actually been to the family cottage in Vermont in, in almost, I guess, two and a half years, just because of everything with COVID and the border shuts down. So uh, it, it was kind of nice to get back there and and try to uh, <laughs> try to just uh, yeah relax. I, I, sunning in Vermont is something that I haven't heard too often. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my sister went to school at University of Connecticut, and uh, and yeah, the weather is uh, it's it's very maritime ish. It can be quite unpredictable even in uh even in june or early july um you you made a great point on twitter jason chapman flagged it and i saw it as well and i'm like yes this is happening a lot you right i'm on vacation but why is toronto under a heat warning this weekend it's called summer and it looks like it's going to be a long one filled with warnings at this rate yeah like there there was a point in time when this is a little bit like, you know, the boy who cried wolf. Like if you say it enough times, you're 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 numbing people to when the heat is really extreme. Like we're talking 40, 42 humidex like we had a couple days last week or the or what it was when I was in Michigan. If you tell people there's a heat warning every time it's 27 and a humidex of 29, we're going to get numb to that. Yeah, and, and that was kind of, I just, I tried to stay off social media for the most part. <laughs> I went on, I, I just see a heat warning. This was uh, not this this previous weekend but the one before and and i just was like heat warning uh the the high was 30 for two days and the the low was below 20 and and really the criteria you get a criteria and then generally you would expect the criteria to be met for this warning and and it just wasn't and and i mean that was at pearson airport downtown we had a wind from the east it was yeah you mentioned 26 27 not a lot of humidity uh, I don't know. I got some pushback on, on social media because people saying, well, it's great to get the, the cooling centers open. And, and yeah, I, I'm, I'm all for all of that. But uh, I mean, I do look at the data more than anything. And, and I think there's, there's a lot of harm in, in issuing warnings for, for thunderstorms that don't produce severe conditions and, and heat warnings like this. I, I think we do get numb to, to, to all of it and, and then the big one actually happens or, or the real heat comes and and people are like yeah but we've had 10 of those this past month yeah that, and that's what they will say like like it's it's just a fixture of what we do now um but with with television or radio we're constant i'm constantly not even consciously anthony giving like the humidex reading even in the morning i'm like i'm looking up i'm glancing up now it's 20 now and the humidex makes it feel a whole two degrees warmer. Why am I even mentioning it? But it comes out of my mouth and I can't put it back in. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I don't know. I, I don't really know, know the answer. <laughs> I, I would personally, first off, just try and make sure that those criteria numbers are met if you're going to issue that warning, which they weren't, by the way, either day. But uh, <laughs> I, I digress. There, there's a, a few complaints that i've had with environment canada I, I know they're trying their hardest i know uh they mean well but but every now and then you, you just kind of scratch your head <laughs> with those things i love the uh they mean well phrase like if, if uh <laughs> if i want to on a first date with a girl and i'm and they were like how to go and i'm like well she means well you know <laughs> yeah let's see if there's a second date right <laughs> um okay so we've got a temperature that looks a little like a little cool i mentioned it last week while you were gone i think with uh with ross we had we had like an 11 degree morning and we don't usually have that in late June an 11 degree overnight. So we're seeing temps maybe more for, for a good chunk of the week in the mid twenties and not really tickling 30 like we usually would this time of year. Yeah. I mean, uh, we're, we're heading into uh, once you get to mid July, that, that is on average the, the hottest temperatures you're going to get here in Southern Ontario. Uh, and I still think there, there's plenty of heat to go. Our, our summer forecast always had it uh, biased later hotter compared to average but uh this is 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 one of those summers that i I think is is amazing for for most people if you're not on the beach or or you're not hoping for that sticky humid late evening uh for for daytime stuff it's pretty good if you're lakeside at the cottage yeah maybe there's a little bit more uh when when it comes to desiring hotter conditions but but yesterday was just beautiful and other than maybe some rain tomorrow uh we're in for a nice sunny stretch that's going to take Take us right uh, into and likely through next weekend. Rainfall. We were down for June 22 compared to June 21. Um, and I think a lot of people's lawns may be starting to show it. Um, it's one thing when we get just a little five minute, 10 minute burst, which we got a couple times last week, including on uh, Canada Day, which we weren't sure would interfere with fireworks or not. But 
I think people would ask, um, do, do we just keep you know blazing away, watering the lawn, or will we get a big pounding of rain anytime you see this week in the, I know we're supposed to get maybe some tonight heading into tomorrow morning. It's a lot rainier day than we've had maybe in eight, nine days tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of that rain is going to be uh, very late tonight and, and early, early tomorrow. So we're going to escape with a pretty nice day overall, at least drier conditions on, on Tuesday. But uh, we, we could use it. And, and I know some areas, this is the time of year where it's hit and miss and you can almost go neighborhood to neighborhood and see uh, in the lawns uh, how much rain has fallen. But I'll just use, I mean, I'll use Pearson Air- Airport as an example. Uh, over the last, I mean, since June 9th, there's been six millimeters of rain and and because of the the dry sunny days in between uh that's just not enough so uh we we have been dry in in much of uh, the province across the south uh, so hopefully tonight we we do get a soaker and that that may occur some of the models are hinting at that but then it dries right back out and that plays into you mentioned the cool nights the the t- lows in the teens uh when you get dry ground yeah it's nice and warm with the sun during the day but you lose all of that when you don't have uh, the humidity around and and that's been the case yeah big factor we had uh we had 80 millimeters of rain in uh, 21 in june and we had uh, 74 millimeters of rain uh, this June, so uh, not much, not much slippage, but uh, but enough. We'll be no, and a lot of that fell early in June. So yes, that, that's kind of it's a misleading stat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. By the time everybody's uh, grass held in there, got green, uh, it was nonstop uh, heat and humidity from uh, the middle middle point of the month on. We'll get more on Friday heading into uh, heading into the weekend. Anthony, glad you're back. We'll be watching tonight. Look, looking forward to it. Thanks again for listening to Toronto Today. We're back with a live show tomorrow between five thirty and nine o'clock. You can catch us on the Radio Player Canada app or at 640toronto.com. And as always, thank you for finding our podcast. Feel free to share it. Rate us as well. Subscribe and rate. Let us know what we can do differently, what we can do better. Always willing to look into that. Thanks again.